Let's turn our attention to the 10th chapter of the book of John. And this is one of my favorite passages, uh, John chapter 10, and we're going to pick up and start at verse 25. This is in the midst of a controversy with the Pharisees. And in chapter 10 and verse 25, Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not part of my flock. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Lord Jesus, just impress these truths deeply into our hearts this morning. I pray, Father, that you would clear the decks of preconceived notions of what things mean and don't mean. Pray that you would give us receptive ears and receptive hearts and open eyes and just a gentleness to just receive as a child what your scriptures have for us this morning. It's in your name that we ask it. Amen. Well, um, I don't know. I would imagine I'm not unique. There are uh, places that become our favorite place in the whole world for a lot of complicated reasons. A lot of it has to do with experience and emotion and things like that. Some of it has to do with childhood. And um, when I was a child, my favorite place to be in the whole world was at 708 South 4th Street in Haytime, Missouri. That was my grandparents' house. And it was the place where I knew the most love and the most acceptance and the most contentedness and peace and well-being. I can still remember as a child, um, my grandparents, we would sometimes go down to Blyville, Arkansas to eat dinner at a barbecue restaurant that's been there since the 30s. And my grandparents had one of those giant Buicks. It was called an Electra 225. It was a 1973 Buick Electra 225. This thing was like the USS Nimitz. You could play the Super Bowl on the back seat of that car. It was huge. And, and um, and when I, one of my favorite memories would be coming back, you know, after dark, after we'd been down to Memphis or down to Blyville or something like that, and, and I would kind of be drowsing in the, in the back seat. And uh, the, the streets in my grandparents' town were concrete, and then they had the joints in the concrete filled with tar. And so when you were driving down 4th Street, getting close to home, there was this rhythmic thump, 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 as the tires rolled over those tar joints. And to, to the end of my days, I will love that sound. I, I went back to my hometown a few years ago, and I just had to drive down 4th Street, and I had to shut everybody up in the car just so I could hear that thump, 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 because that was the sound of something really good. And I also remember the sound of the big trucks on the interstate nearby, or the distant sound of the, of the train rumbling through town or Katie Dids, or morning doves. We had two morning doves that would come and sit on the fence in the morning, and you could hear them making their coo. Those were the sounds 
for me of comfort and belonging and rest. And if you had a happy childhood, or even if you had a miserable childhood, but you had one place that was a haven of rest and peace for you, then it's probably similar for you. And there's this great sense of peace and sweet longing that that fills your heart as you remember. Uh, Just this morning, I I had to listen to a, a song by Rich Mullins two or three times that I just love because it's about the prairie. And, and it starts off talking about South Dakota, Nebraska. And I was just like, that's a song about home for me. I love that song. I want to play that at my funeral. Timothy, if you're around at my funeral, you got to learn that song. But it's not only associated with childhood, is it? Uh, there are few feelings that are sweeter to human beings than to know that you belong somewhere. A husband and a wife grow together over the years, and so much of their contented happiness grows from the fact that they belong to each other. They belong together. A college student comes home for a break, or a soldier comes back from basic training or their first deployment. A traveler comes back from abroad, and when you walk in the door, home seems sweet, because home is where you belong. Home is where you are known and where you are accepted. And part of what makes going to a new place so disorienting and the cause of such unhappiness for so many people is you go somewhere and you don't belong, or at least you don't belong yet. And one of the reasons why, for instance, uh, I want your children and your grandchildren to come here and to be in the church from their earliest years is just exactly for that reason. I want them to feel like this is a place where they belong. I've, got, I've been building a relationship with kids in the neighborhood, and this week I had like 10 of them in here playing hide-and-seek in the dungeon, and they just love it. They come over and ask for permission. They don't hurt anything. I say, you can't touch the soundboard, and you can't touch any of the instruments, but knock yourselves out. And I figure this church has survived lock-ins since the 60s, and, and these kids aren't going to be able to hurt anything, and they, they're good kids, but they love it here. One of them was just sitting on the couch, just looking at his phone. It was like, this is a place of rest for him. I want that for them. I want them to feel like this is a home. This is a place where they're accepted. This is a place where they're loved. This is a place that's safe. This is a place where good things happen. Uh, I want your children to have early memories of, for for instance, a, a missionary coming to speak to us on a Sunday night and they drowse in the pew because they're sleepy. And they're warm and they're content and they're quiet and they're at rest. I want them to come back every year for for Christmas Eve services, the candlelight services. And I want them to go, that's what I remember about childhood is candlelight services every year. And the songs that we sang and how dark and kind and sweet it was and how much I was looking forward to tomorrow and the presents and all those things. I want that. We want familiar songs in their ears. We want them to form this constellation of happy memories and associations here at the church so that if they ever start to stray from the path, if their hearts ever become enamored with the world, or that, that just a visit to a little country church maybe, or a Christmas Eve back home here at Tabernacle can be used by God to draw their hearts back to Him. That nature can be Turned to, to, and grace, rather, nature and grace can work together in harmony and turn 
a disoriented soul around right. And why is it that nature and grace can cooperate in that way? Well, it's because God made us that way. St. Augustine says in his confessions, he says, Thou hast made us for thyself, and our hearts are restless until they rest in thee. You and I were made for God. You and I were made to be known by God and to know God and to be loved by God and to love God in return. Listen to the words of our Lord Jesus Christ and listen to them if you can with the ears of your heart. My sheep hear my voice and I know them. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Christ says about the Christian that he or she is one of my sheep. How does a, a Christian get to be Christ's, Christ's sheep? Well, the Christian is Christ's sheep, first of all, because Christ chose him. Before there was a world, God the Father set his electing love on each and every one of these precious sheep and purposed to save them. Where do I find that? Well, I find that in Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 4, among other places. In Ephesians 1, 4, he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. And God the Father then gave us to God the Son for redemption and safekeeping. We find this in John chapter 17, the high priestly prayer of Jesus. Jesus is praying to God, and he's praying out loud so that the disciples can hear. And he says, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me. That's what Jesus says to the Father. Oh, Christian, before God formed the rocks, and the hills, he set his everlasting love upon you, and he purposed to save you through Christ and make you one of his sheep. He wrote your name in his book, and he exercised his divine prerogative, and he said, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and he made you his precious possession. You know, people prize things that they've had for a long time. Um, I, I asked my wife to bring this this morning. I, I forgot it at home. I have had this little pocket Bible for a lot of years. I bought it back in 1994 or so, and I carried it with me through the spiritual hurricane that was a liberal seminary education. Uh, it was marked, it is marked and annotated. It's been with me through some of the most painful moments of my life, and its pages bear the testimony to that fact. This little book has been, at serious times in my life, the very voice of God to me. And when the cover wore out, I actually cut the upholstery off of an old broken leather office chair, and I glued it to the heavy cardboard that I, the heaviest cardboard that I could find that would fit, and I, and I made a new cover, and it's a pretty poor uh, first attempt, but it's held up for a lot of years. And uh, not long ago, I, I lost it. I lost it, and I took it with me when I was on a, a business trip for my business, and, and, uh, and I couldn't find it. I thought I'd left it in a hotel room, and I was 
very sad. I, I, I didn't find it for like six months. I, I was very sad because this little Bible was gone. It had been at that point mine for 18 years. Now it's been mine for far longer than that. And length of ownership and experience with it had made it precious. Loved ones, if you are in Christ, God has owned you far longer than 18 years. You have been his special treasured possession from before the time that there were even angels. One of the things that I find most painful about other theological expressions is that they diminish that special status a little bit. And, and I know that there are folks here that do not believe in predestination and eternal security and things like that. And, and I understand that. And I'm not trying to grind you under my heel at all. I just, I just want to ask you to kind of just for a moment, try and look at the world through my eyes. Just be charitable to me. You think I'm wrong. It's fine. I get that. It's okay. I'm not insulted by that. But try and look at the world through my eyes for a minute. And, and suspend your disbelief just for a minute. Because in the quest, as I see it, in the quest for an exaltation of God's potential mercy on all, something precious is being destroyed. The unspeakable joy and privilege of knowing that I am one who God set his special love upon and determined before there was a world that he would make me into something that I do not deserve and could never attain without him. I have this breathtaking feeling that, that this God who elected me, he saved me just out of his sovereign mercy. And there's no reason for it. There's absolutely no reason for it. I am no better. I am worse than many other people in this world. And he just saved me. And I look at that and I go, why? Why would you do that? And I don't have an explanation, except the God who says, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will pardon whom I will pardon. You see, I believe that the scriptures teach that Jesus didn't die to give potential salvation to everyone, but he died to secure the salvation of his sheep, the full and final and actual salvation for his sheep, who couldn't possibly choose to help themselves. My sheep hear my voice. I give them eternal life. You are, Christian, one of the rarest jewels in all humanity, whether you believe in predestination or, or, or free will. You are one of the most precious things in existence. Most of the world, at least as I read the New Testament, most of the world will be lost. And many who think they belong to Jesus will be lost. But if you are truly in Christ, you will be saved and preserved to the end. You are crowned with a dignity and an honor and a glory that is second only to the dignity, honor, and glory which belong to Jesus Christ. You will judge angels. And all of this as I understand my Bible, simply because he chose you. Simply because he plucked you from the fire as a brand from the burning. You are his sheep because he chose you. You are his sheep because he bought you. He ransomed you. 
He redeemed you. We wander away. We, we, we sold ourselves to sin and to slavery in the same way that the prodigal sold himself to feed pigs. And we happily agreed to our miserable wages because the wages of sin is death. But he bought us back and he received our bitter wages so that we didn't have to. And he didn't redeem us with gold or silver or precious stones or perishable things. Rather, he redeemed us. He spent his life. He poured himself out for us. And he tasted death, even death on a cross, so that you might live. And what are the marks of the sheep? Well, first of all, Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice. That's a, the mark of Christ's sheep. They, they hear his voice, and his voice is surpassingly sweet, isn't it? You know, I, I, I never heard the gospel clearly when I was young. I don't know if it was me or the church I was going to. It was probably a lot of both. But I came to Christ about my 15th birthday, and I remember that whole thing very clearly. And I've been walking with him now for quite a little while. I don't know how it is with you, but from time to time I find myself drifting. I find myself slowly drifting away from the Lord Jesus. Sometimes it's sin. Sometimes it's just busyness and forgetfulness that cause it. But, but I get myself worked up into a state of anxiety or a state of fear or a state of anger or I fall into some other sort of bondage and I am deeply unhappy and then I hear the voice of Jesus calling me. Calling me back to repentance. Calling me back to himself. And I'm reminded of how sweet life is when I walk closely with the Lord Jesus. Do you ever get that? Does that ever happen to you where you're just like, oh, I'm busy, I'm busy, I'm busy, I'm cold, I'm spiritually cold, I'm not interested in prayer, I don't read my Bible, I don't want to know, and, and then all of a sudden as you drift away, you get more and more miserable. He doesn't leave us if we belong to him in that state of affairs. He calls us back to himself and he has wonderful ways of doing it. You don't have to worry. You don't have to fret or fear when you walk with Jesus, but you forget that for a little bit. And then he speaks to you, and he reminds you, come home, he says. C come to me again. Draw near to me. I know you. I love you. I will lead you. I will take care of you. And you come back to Jesus, and it's like, oh, I'm home. We may stray far from him. We may lose our way. We may fall into lifestyles of sex or drugs or drink or pornography or all manner of self-indulgence. We may think we're saved when we're young and find out that we're not. We may begin to love the world in so many different ways. Our children who walked with him in their younger days, may go off on their own and fall into all sorts of dissipation. They may wander in the wilderness for years and years. They may stretch the cord tight that binds them to Jesus, but they can never break it, not if there truly is. And why is that? 
Well, Jesus tells us, I give them eternal life and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. Now, stop for a minute. When Jesus says no one, let me ask you a question. Are you someone? Yes or no? Are you someone? Yes. So in the subset of all human beings, you belong to that subset. You are someone, right? We used to say, I am somebody. So everybody said, I am somebody. That was weak. Say it again. I am somebody. Nobody can snatch you out of his hand. And that includes you because you are somebody. If you truly belong to Jesus, you can't lose it. Now, you can think you belong to Jesus and not. And that's why the Bible says to make your calling and election sure. But the person who fully and finally falls away didn't have something and then lose it in our understanding of things. They never had something they thought they had. That's the difference. We don't look at that and say, well, that, you know, a person can just pray a prayer and then live however they want. That happens, but that, that's not a salvation that was accomplished and lost. That was just never a salvation in our understanding. Jesus tells us, I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. There was a man once named William Mackay. He was a Scottish man. He was raised in a Christian home and a small town. At the age of 17, he left his home to go off to the university in the big city. His mother was a godly woman. She was concerned for her son's spiritual well-being. He'd been raised in church. He knew all the right things. He had professed Jesus Christ. As a parting gift, she gave him a Bible, and she inscribed the flyleaf of the Bible with her name and his name and a verse of scripture. William was a good student, but he fell in with the wrong crowd, and he began drinking heavily. Soon he was enslaved to whiskey, and the cost of his habit outstripped his income as a student. And so one day he took that Bible that his mother had given him to a pawn shop, and he pawned it in order to buy whiskey. Gradually, he descended into all kinds of moral depravity. He was even elected the leader of something called the Infidel Club, and God became to him an object of mockery and contempt. He was, however, a brilliant student, and he managed not only to get through college, but then to get through medical school, and then, even in spite of his drinking, to attain a high position in a hospital there in the city. And the one aspect of his work that gave him the most satisfaction was beating death. And he was the man to call when someone was thought to be a hopeless case and there was no hope of their survival. And every time he dragged someone back from death's gate, he would revel in his conquest and his heart would swell with pride and with arrogance. I pick up the story from there. One day, Mackay was called to the hospital a young man, critically injured, probably in some industrial accident, was admitted to the hospital. The lower half of his body was crushed. He could not have many hours to live. 
William Mackay hurried to the scene. Surely he was the right man to deal with such a situation. The victim was in desperate pain, but one thing startled the doctor. He had observed the faces of many as they lay racked with agony from multiple injuries, but there was a strange look on this man's face, a serenity that defied explanation. What's the diagnosis, doctor? asked the injured man. Oh, I guess we will pull you through, said Mackay cheerily. No, doctor, I don't want any guess. I want to know if it's life or death. Mackay looked at his patient with astonishment as he continued. Just lay me down easy anywhere, doctor. I'm ready to die. I'm not afraid to die. I trust in the precious shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. If I have to die, I know I'm going to be with him. But I would like to know the truth. Just what is my condition? Able to cope with most contingencies, William Mackay scarcely knew how to answer this calm-faced man. And then he said, you have at most three hours to live. Thank you, doctor, replied, replied the dying man quietly. Even the hardened and cynical medic was suddenly touched. Is there anything special you would like us to do for you? He asked kindly. In one of my pockets is a two-weeks pay packet, replied the patient. Could you please have someone take it at once to my landlady to pay for my lodgings? And yes, there is one more thing. Could they ask her to send me the book? What book is that? asked the surprised doctor. Oh, just the book. She will know. As he carried on his duties around the hospital, William Mackay could not erase the sight of that calm face, nor could he shut out the sound of those words, I am ready, doctor, just lay me down easy anywhere, I am ready. Ready for death? This was a concept that Mackay had long since rejected from his code of life. Normally able to shrug off the most appalling scenes of, of human suffering, the doctor felt he must know what had happened to his patient. Did he get his book before he died? Returning to the ward, he surprised the nurse in charge by asking after the casualty placed under her care. He died a few minutes ago, was her simple reply. And did he get his book, inquired the doctor. What was it? A bank book? Yes, he got his book, assured the nurse. It arrived shortly before he died, but no, it wasn't his bank book. It is still there under his pillow, if you want to look at it. Reaching the dead man's bedside, Mackay, Dr. Mackay felt under his pillow and pulled out the book. It was a Bible. It looked strangely familiar. He opened it. And there on the flyleaf, he was startled to read his own name and the name of his mother together with the scripture text she had given him so long ago. This was the very Bible he had pawned for whiskey as a student. With shocked shame, Mackay put the Bible under his coat and hurried to his private office. Choking with emotion, he fell on his knees and he begged God to forgive him his sins and to have mercy upon him. William Mackay was a man in debt, a debt to the unexpected mercy of God, a debt to the men and women of his generation. Shortly after this, he gave up his medical career and entered the Christian ministry, accepting a pastorate in Hull. And with a zeal born of gratitude and a desire to make good on the wasted years, Mackay also traveled the length and breadth of the country preaching the gospel that he had once despised. 
Before his own premature death, he published a collection of his sermons in a book entitled Grace and Truth. The messages breathed the same spirit that characterized his life from that moment onwards, and these sermons were widely used by God. Grace and Truth would eventually run to at least 58 editions, and through it many others were drawn to the Savior who alone can conquer the power of death. My sheep hear my voice, and they come to me, and I give them eternal life, and no one can snatch them out of my hand. Heavenly Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight, for you are my rock and my redeemer.